Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Hello to everybody at all of our campuses, Bel Air and Edgewood and Abingdon and online. Let's just make some noise in here. We see you out there wherever you are. It's good. We can all join together today for this last uh, episode of Thread. We've been following the life of David, King David. He's a king. He has a kingdom. We, uh, we don't live in a kingdom. We don't talk in those terms very often. I guess maybe if you watch Game of Thrones, you kind of know what that's about. Uh, we'll use some of that language today to kind of get where we need to go. Before we move further, though, a question for you. Uh, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Not as in, what are you waiting for? Like, hurry up already. Like I say to my kids, you know, we go on a road trip and after 10 minutes, oh, we got to go to the bathroom. And so we pull over and we get out and we get them to the spot. And then, what are you waiting for? I can't go. Oh. No. What are you waiting for? Like, truly longing for. What are you waiting for to happen that you believe, oh, that'll really make life great? Now, I know the life you project on social media and the life you would talk about if anyone asked you is great already, sure. But be honest. What are you waiting for? Waiting uh, for, for a chance, my opportunity. Waiting for a, a breakthrough. Waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. Some people wait for a child to be born, to be adopted, or to return from a wayward path. Uh, waiting for justice or a job. Waiting for, um, I don't know, to be heard, to, to hear the words, I love you. F- for some, every day of waiting, it causes hope to fade. Uh, others are like uh, watching a clock ticking down and it just can't get to zero fast enough. You're eagerly waiting for your next birthday or for graduation day or to get my own room or to, to get my own place. Parents are waiting to get out of the phase, whatever, diapers or tantrums or eye rolls. Waiting for school to start, a lot of us. Waiting for retirement. Waiting to get all of our ducks in a row so we can finally take that trip. We're, we're longing for things like freedom or relief or gratification or fulfillment. Because in waiting, life isn't full. It's not, life is not what it could be. It's not what it should be. That's why we're waiting. We're waiting for things that we believe will make life better than it is now. Answers. F- for life to make sense. Closure. Order. Solutions. Healing. To catch a break. To get out of the woods. To get over the hump. To be free from danger. For some, we're waiting to, to be safe. We're, we're stuck on an island all alone. We're, we're in a dark place. We're lost. We're just waiting for someone to tell us what to do. Maybe then life would click. Maybe then our longings would be fulfilled. What are you waiting for? I don't mean to get so deep on you right away. Here. Some of you are just waiting for me to get to the point. Like, uh, <laughs> when do these things get over? Anyway, I don't know. I was thinking about the story of a guy who was waiting, on one level, for waiting for a whole lot, but just very practically, he was waiting for his fate to be decided. He was locked up in jail. He was a contemporary of Jesus, uh, a relative of his, in fact, known as John the Baptist. Now, John's relationship with Jesus was such that he'd heard enough about Jesus to know there was something special about him, but he'd also seen enough to have some doubts and to ask some questions. Questions like, maybe, um, I don't know, like, hey, Jesus, are you going to get me out of jail? Uh, we don't have record of that question. But we do know another question that John asked Jesus, and it's one of those, oh, I'm so glad you said that because we were all thinking it kinds of things. So if you're familiar with John, you know he was the forerunner for Jesus, like the hype man, kind of. He paved the way and then got out of the way for Jesus to come and seemingly carry forward God's plans. But that was then, and this is now. John's in jail. It seemed as if we were in the moment that we were waiting for. John was the one we were waiting for. Jesus was the one we were waiting for. But now, a little 
question about that. We're not so sure. So John's eventually just saying, I- I'm going to ask. What, what, what do I got to lose? I'm in jail anyway. So he hears about what's going on there, out there with Jesus, and he sends some friends of his to ask Jesus a question. Luke chapter 7, when the messengers came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one that we should be looking for, or should we wait for someone else? Almost a blind date scenario. You've been set up with someone, true blind date, never seen him. You just know, oh, you're going to love her. Oh, he's wonderful. And so you just keep watching the door. Is that the one? Is that them? Or, or am I waiting for someone else? That, that's the kind of expectation that was alive in the time of Jesus. John the Baptist simply had the courage to say, to ask what was on everybody's mind. Is this, are you, because we've been waiting a long time. Well, what are they waiting for? And what gave rise to their expectation? It may not be readily apparent to us, but for the people in Jesus' day, there was a sense of anticipation that was woven right into their identity. This, the cultural lore that was passed down from generation to generation. Uh, fathers talking to their sons, working in the field. Mothers kneading dough in the kitchen with their daughters, kindling their expectations. The, the sacred text that they read and sang aloud every week in the synagogue would uh, talk about promises or, uh, to, that were for the future and recounted God's faithfulness in the past, and it, it shaped their imagination and hopes for what was to come. Their songs and their poems, they urged them on. Don't forget now, Psalm 32, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne, for the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit in throne, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will supply with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn, a future leader, grow for David. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. And God's not joking around. we got more lyrics. Listen to what God says in Psalm 89. Once and for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. His line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. These poetic promises, they orbit around a prominent figure from the past. David, King David, we've gotten to know him. And they paint this hopeful picture that is vastly different from what God's people are experiencing in the moment. See, by the time you get to the New Testament days, uh, there's been a little bit of an interruption in the royal line of David. Like, big time. Uh, Yeah, we're not being led. We're not being governed by God's chosen servant. One like David, a man after God's own heart, the promised one. No, no. We we got a puppet king who answers to the most powerful empire in the world, the Romans. They don't care about us. Don't care about the name of our God. Don't care about abundant provisions and satisfying the poor and justice and peace and joy for God's people. None of that. Their rule is oppressive, brutal, and taxing. What about David's line enduring forever? What about the future leader who is to come, his reign lasting as long as the sun? What about the defeat of his enemies? Because we're on the losing end right now. When is all of that going to happen? These songs from our Old Testament would have tapped into all of these longings for the people living in Jesus' day, and they would have probably been the songs that John is replaying in his mind as he lays there every day in jail, locked up by this puppet king. Were all these lyrics just fantasy? Well, they're, they're rooted... In history, the, the waiting, the expectations, all trace back to one significant moment in the life of David. And again, if you've been around, you know. We've been 
watching David's life unfold right before us. Nine weeks, we've been tracing the thread that runs through David's life. And we got last week to the last um, chronological event that we have in David's life. But uh, there's one more event to witness from David. Not just to understand who he is, but to understand what has God up to in this whole story of the Bible. And then, what does that mean for us? So, final look at David's life today. You ready? Okay. Well, I'm ready. So, uh, in case you were wondering. Second uh, Samuel 7, all right? Go there if you have a Bible. This is all the books of the Bible on a shelf. We're right here um, in Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel tell David's story. And when you get to Second Samuel 7, you've seen some of the best of David. He's killed Goliath. He's won a lot of military victories. He was patient and honorable and waiting for the throne from King Saul. And now he's established on the throne. He's settling down in his new capital city of Jerusalem. And uh, there he gets an idea. It's, it's a very generous gesture. He looks around and he says, Man, I am living large in this palace, and the ark of the Lord is sitting in a tent. The ark was like a sacred box that symbolized God's presence. So David says, I'm going to build a more permanent structure there. I'm going to build a temple, a house for the Lord. And God's like, oh, easy big fella. That, that's, that's okay. Um, thank you. But, but no thank you, because I'm actually going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty that will endure long after you're gone. Remember, God tells David, I took you from the sheep pen and made you ruler over my people, which is exactly what God had done in so many other cases, working through the most unlikely of people. And that, he's still doing that. You think about all the reasons that you maybe are disqualified or people told you that you wouldn't measure up to anything. God doesn't see that. God looks at the heart. That was week one. Remember that from this series. God still worked through David with all of his blemishes and his failures. The thread of God's redemptive story is still going to run through David. And specifically, it's going to look like this. God said to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the promise that God makes to David. It's what inspired all of those songs. And it's a promise that God didn't have to make. Conceivably, there were other options. No one was backing him into a corner. No one putting pressure on him. Well, except maybe, you know, his own integrity. Because... Long ago, he had made a similar kind of promise to Abraham. On the 12th page of the Bible, God showed up and said to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Through your descendants, all the people of the earth will be blessed. Those descendants turned out to be really stubborn people. Uh, to put it kindly. But God somehow worked patiently and powerfully through them to bring his plan to this moment, to this shepherd boy turned warrior king. And now he's forecasting a future that the thread of the promise to Abraham will run through David and bring great blessing uh, for generations and nations to come. Peace, prosperity, justice, security, land to enjoy and call our own. All the things, all the ideals that are in our own constitution. All the things that anyone living anywhere has ever wanted. That's what David was promised. But again, that was then, and this is now. 
John the Baptist is sitting in jail. And he knows how the history uh, had unfolded from that moment. Sure, yes, David's descendants sat on the throne for about 400 years. Some of them good, some of them very much not. And then it all fell apart. The kingdom crumbled, literally. Enemies came in and took control, and God's people have been waiting ever since. There had been a few upstart revolutions, a few even significant victories that were uh, won at moments along the way, but nothing that materialized into the fulfillment of God's promise to David. So if you were a believer in in the God of our Old Testament, if you uh, traced your story to him, the promises that he made, and the history of his faithfulness, you continued to wait for him to be faithful again, for for answers, for consolation, for healing, for justice, a breakthrough, to be saved, all, all the things that we often find ourselves waiting for. Onto this stage, Jesus steps a thousand years after King David. A carpenter's son, that's what everybody saw. From a backwater town, that's what everybody knew. He would have been about as unassuming as a shepherd boy. Uh, Nothing about his appearance was going to really say that he was something special. And so, since there were lots of questions and there was some uncertainty, the writers of the New Testament give us some hints to help us understand who Jesus really is. Now, raise your hand. Have you ever thought the Bible was a little hard to understand? Yeah, okay, a lot of you are lying. Um, or you've never read it. But yeah, it's hard. It, it's thick. You, things just go over your head or it slips right past you. It's deep. You've got to do some digging, some detective work. Well, I have been doing uh, some work here, and I'll just invite you to help me out. Maybe together we can figure this out. I've been trying to piece together some clues from the Bible's message. And I think that if you take a look, maybe we can look at this and figure out what's going on here. All right? Like, it's like it's right there. I just, I don't know. What are you getting? It certainly seems like the writers of the New Testament are trying to tell us something about Jesus. Now, maybe, this, you, maybe you're aware of this, or maybe you're discovering these threads for the first time. But actually, I showed this to someone earlier this week, and they were surprised. They said, that's not the Bible I'm reading. Well, Yes, yes it is. It's right there. Right there for all of us to see. It's on the first page and the the last page. Matthew chapter 1. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of? Not God. Well, yes, God. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. Yes, in Revelation 22. Jesus, the root and the offspring of David. Yes, we hear it in the Christmas story. This is what the angel announced to Mary. You've heard this a hundred times. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's what it's talking about. Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from? This is my gospel. And on and on it goes. David The highest page count in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, the highest in the New. And the writers of the New Testament, trying to help us see who Jesus is, they continually point back to a portrait of David in order to help us get a clear portrait of Jesus. But I wonder, is it really making things clear? Because because Jesus doesn't look like David. I mean, maybe the shepherd boy part, but, but what about the warrior king part, the, the part that's inherent to the promise? Throne, scepter, power, the making your enemies a footstool at your feet part. You know, when's that going to happen? When are we going to get started on that? When are we taking over this piece? The kingdom's going to last forever, but let's not take forever in getting it started. What are we waiting for? Jesus doesn't look 
like what we've been waiting for. He holds no political position. He, he stockpiles no weapons. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. His recruits are, are fishermen and commoners. His teaching is not the flowery rhetoric of a tyrant, but it cuts right to the heart and exposes the truth. His ambition is not to dominate, but to serve. He doesn't accumulate vast fortunes for himself, and he warns his followers against being weighed down by wealth. Gold reserves don't seem to be the currency that matters in his kingdom, unlike any other kingdom that has ever existed. Love counts for so much more. And in order to give his followers the life that they've always wanted, he bids them come and die to yourself that you may truly live. Jesus doesn't look like the one we've been waiting for. I suppose we can understand John's question. Are you the one we should be looking for? Or are we supposed to wait for someone else? At that particular time, Jesus was healing many people who were sick or in pain or who were troubled by evil spirits. And he was giving sight to a lot of blind people, you know, like you do. Jesus just said to the messengers sent by John, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Blind people are now able to see, and the lame can walk. People who have leprosy are being healed, and the deaf can hear. The dead are raised to life, and the poor are hearing the good news. And God will bless everyone who doesn't reject me because of what I do. Could it be that Jesus is bringing us more than what we've been waiting for? So something more profound than political freedom and military victory. For he's demonstrated that his authority reaches to a realm unreached by any earthly king. For even the demons obey him. Over sickness and infirmity, he claims dominion. He's even stared down death and beat it into submission. Not with an army, not with his sword, but with his word. He spends his time not on a throne, but bringing good news to the poor. Good news. Everything that has held you in captivity is now being broken loose. Fear, guilt, darkness, the sin that crouches at your door and dominates too much of your life. The death that comes to us all, he's kicked it down and remade it into a doorway to life. In Jesus' kingdom, prosperity is not determined by how much you have, but by how much you give away. Greatness is not achieved by winning the rat race to the top, but by stooping down to serve that you may be exalted. Political position, that's fine. It's fine to hold that. But Jesus grants greater authority over evil to all those who trust him. Greater purpose and identity, identity to all those who seek him. Yes, the New Testament testifies. Jesus is fulfilling the promise to David. Yes, Jesus, in so many ways, fails to live up to the picture of his ancestor. But Jesus is saying, what we've been waiting for fails to live up to what he wants to give us. And this is the real thing that, that hits us when we look at Jesus. It's just as relevant, uh, you know, as it was then, it's just as relevant right now. Well, the thing we all have to acknowledge, Jesus doesn't look like what we're waiting for. He's not the image of power and wealth and success and the good life that all of us kind of know. It's been etched into our minds since we first played King of the Hill on the schoolyard to playing Monopoly around the kitchen table to when we earned our first paycheck and watched Game of Thrones. Jesus is just not that. And so we're caught 
We like the promises of the kingdom. You don't even have to have read the Bible to know what they are. We just know prosperity materially defined. We like that. Getting stuff makes us happy. But Jesus' path to prosperity seems absurd. We, we want peace. We want security. So long as it comes by getting more control. Not by submitting to Jesus. We want to be great, but not in the way that Jesus defines it. The blissful promises, you know, that were given to David. Oh, we, we like that. But our intuition is to get that through our will be done. Not God's will be done. We want the world to be a better place, but we want to define what's better and control what's better and take credit for making it better and feel better as a result. But our quest is ultimately limited by the same inadequacies and frailties that made things worse for David and all his other descendants who didn't realize the better world that God promised in the first place because they didn't trust the king. We have this tendency to want the kingdom but not the king. You can go to church every Sunday and hear about the kingdom and pray for the kingdom and its blessings and hope for the promises of the kingdom to come true, all while resisting the king. That's essentially what was happening in Acts chapter 13. Observe one more thing. Because this is like the whole point of how the New Testament tells the story about Jesus. Okay, when you get to Acts chapter 13, Jesus has already come and died and rose and ascended and sent his spirit to empower his people, the church, to live out his kingdom in the world. That began in Jerusalem, and then it began to spread all over the world that the Romans still think they control. In a province uh, up north, in a prominent city, there were some people gathering weekly, kind of like what we do, except for them on the Sabbath in the synagogue. They read our Old Testament. They sang the Psalms. They affirmed their hope in God's promises, their belief that history is going somewhere. God's going to get us there. One day, uh, some guests arrive, Paul and Barnabas. Knowing that they have uh, education and authority to teach, the hosts invite Paul to take the floor. Well, Paul knows who he's talking to, so he just starts from the beginning. He tells them the story. God has been fulfilling his promise to Abraham to bless the world for a long time. He talks about the, God freeing them from slavery in Egypt, which was led by Moses. And then he brought them into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. They were led by judges for a period of time, Samuel being the last one. And Samuel was the one who anointed David. And about David, Paul says, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. It's already happened. He mentions John the Baptist. It wasn't about him. It was about the one coming after him, Jesus. Through him, God is trying to send us a message. To us, the message of salvation has been sent. Now, the people of Jerusalem and their leaders, they didn't recognize Jesus. They couldn't see what was really going on, and so they condemned him. And by doing so, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that they read every Sabbath. But when they thought they had won, when they thought they had proven their point, God proved his point by raising Jesus from the dead. And Paul proves that point to them by appealing over and over to David and the promises that God made to him. 
the, the promise it wasn't about some measly military victory, but about, about a victory over sin and death such that no king has ever conquered before. Guaranteeing a territory that stretches the earth and reaches to the heaven such that no king has ever ruled before. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it's stated elsewhere in a psalm of David in the Old Testament. You will not let your holy one see decay. Paul's point being, David served God's purpose in his day and then he died. And now his body is rotting. Sorry, it just is. Just like every other king that's ever existed. Jesus, on the other hand, served God's purpose in his day, and he's not decaying in a tomb. He lives. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, this no-account, backwater, carpenter's son, Jesus, through him, God has fulfilled his promise to David of a kingdom that has no end. He's the king, the enemies of sin and death, who no one's ever conquered before. Jesus has made them a footstool at his feet. He won the victory you've been waiting for, and the blessings of God's promises that you've been longing for are now setting you free. And some people did exactly that. They clapped. But Paul says, beware. This is his punchline. Therefore, beware now that that what the prophets said doesn't happen to you. When they said, uh, look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish. For in your days, God says, I'm doing a new work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you, don't miss it. Jesus has come. God's victory has been won. The thread that God has led through David to Jesus, has now come to you. Grace, peace, security, life to the full. What are you waiting for? Don't miss it. Those are the sermons they preached when the church first began. I think the message is still relevant for today. On that day, there were basically two responses, which I suppose is typical anytime God's story is told. Some were not persuaded. They left just as they had come with their life in their own hands, unwilling to receive the fulfillment of God's promises. Probably just as desirous of the kingdom and all that it comes with it as they ever were, but insisting that it would have to come on their own terms. They wanted the kingdom, but not this king. Then there were others who said, whoa, wait, we got to hear more about this. When can we do this again? And they continued in the grace of God. They took hold of the thread of God's promises, living in a kingdom that has no end. You know, it's an interesting thing about God. When an earthly king comes and takes over a people, there aren't any choices in the matter. The king will exert his will and you will become subject to him. But God, even though it is his greatest desire and his will that we would trust him and enjoy life in his kingdom, he yields to our decision. 
And that decision to trust him is the fundamental decision for all of us. We all want the good life. That's what we're all after. The question is, who are you going to trust to get it? How will it be obtained? A lot of us are waiting for a break, waiting for the breakthrough. Well, according to the one who threaded this story together from David to Jesus, the, the breakthrough has happened. Jesus is king. The kingdom that has no end has already begun. The decision is ours every day about whether we want to live in it or not. And about who will trust as king. And yes, there is kind of that one-time moment, that, that line in the sand moment where we are ready to give our allegiance to Jesus. And maybe some are ready to do that today. And you would get baptized. We're always ready to do that. But, but for, for all of us, every day we've got to answer, will we be ruled by our desires and go wherever they take us? Or will we submit them to Jesus? Will we be held captive by whatever others think of us? Or will we embrace our true identity as daughters and sons of the king? Will we make choices out of self-interest and self-preservation and run ahead with what we want or whatever we can get away with? Or will we yield every choice to God's wisdom? And if we need more of that, then it's time to get rooted. Will we use our material wealth for our own gain out of scarcity? Or will we be generous and open-handed with whatever God places into our hands? Will we love conditionally, like what makes sense to pretty much everyone, love those who love you as long as they love you? Or will we love unconditionally, like the way Jesus modeled for us? And when we fail to love like Jesus, will we rationalize or repent? There is an ethic in this kingdom. But it's not this oppressive set of rules. It's built off of the example of the king who established the kingdom. The love and the grace and the forgiveness he freely gave. The justice that he sought for those who were overlooked. The humility with which he served. The sacrifice that he made. He loved us and set us free to love. That's the currency of his kingdom. The kingdom that was promised to David and is going to bless the whole world is ruled by Jesus. And he invites us to live in it. What are you waiting for? Take hold of the thread of God's promises. Because the God who threaded this whole story together promises to hold your life together in a kingdom that has no end. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your promises to us. We reflect on your goodness and your faithfulness, which has spanned centuries and generations. We're so grateful for the, the stories that we still have in what we call the Bible. You've given them to us, and, and it's been real. It's been in history. You've answered. You've shown up. You've made real promises, and you've fulfilled those promises. We gather today as people of the promise, Promises started way back to Abraham and was led through all kinds of people we can read about in our Bible, and now it comes to us today. Find us ready to, to respond, ready to take hold and to trust you to be our king. We confess that there are lots of other kings and kingdoms that are attractive to us. And in any place where we've built our life on those things, I pray that you would help us to see them for what they are, for us to dismantle those things and to build our lives instead on the rock that is Jesus Christ truly trust him to be 
our King. Thank you for what you've shown us today through David's life, through your story. Speak to us in whatever way you choose and lead us in whatever way you see fit. For you are our King. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.